Only about six weeks after the, the end of that tour, we were second to headline on the bill at um, Reading Festival. 50,000 people. We were second headline, Thin Lizzy were going to headline. And I was going to play that. You know, people said, you got no band. Well, we're on the bill and I'm playing. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Vintage Rock Pod, the podcast series that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. This is the podcast series where we interview rock stars from the classic golden age of rock, from the 60s, 70s and 80s, to hear all their wonderful stories that they have to share about life back then, you know, the big hits, making classic albums, touring with huge names and so much more. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. Now in this episode, we're back to our full team. Tim will be joining me as always, and Maudie is back to entertain and inform too. And this week's rock star guest is a man who had huge hits in the 70s, including a number one that still gets plenty of play on radio today. He gives us a real in-depth journey into the band, the events around writing the smash hit single, and everything else that followed too. It's a great interview, so listen out for that. Quick recap, shout-outs, thanks, and round-up before we crack on, though. I found out this week that Blabbermouth.net had taken my interview from episode 8 with Scorpion's frontman Klaus Mein and turned it into a news article on their website and on Facebook as well, which boosted views on the YouTube video by a couple of thousand, which was uh, very nice to see indeed. Uh, Shout-out this week to a few people on Twitter for getting in touch and sharing the love. Uh, Joey's big brother, Nick Wolsey, Stephen Calcutt, AIK Beauty and Uncanny Collective. And on Facebook, thank you very much to Athol Manson, Fiona Ingleby and Andrew Smith as well. All messages and shares very much appreciated. And an update on our countries list. I've not checked this in a few weeks and it looks like we've actually made it to 31 different countries around the world now with Iceland, Belgium, Bangladesh and South Africa added to our list. So a big hello to you wherever you're listening to this or wherever you are around the globe. Right, let's get stuck into this week's show now and catch up on all the rock stories from the last seven days with our friend, author and journalist from Record Collector magazine and Universal Music's youdiscovermusic.com. It is, of course, Tim Peacock. Let's see what he's got lined up for us this week. Hi, Paul. Uh, Typically eclectic. I think that's the word I often use, but it is typically eclectic tonight. Um, The first of the three, actually, I've got is a kind of a a follow-up story. I think the very first thing I actually ever did on on, um, the news was Ken Hensley's death. So it's actually a Ken Hensley story, but it's a slightly more positive story on this occasion um, because there will actually be a Ken Hensley posthumous album is out in, in March. Very good indeed. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of with a bit of a twist, actually. It's called My Book of Answers. It's coming out on Cherry Red, and of course, Cherry Red, as you know, a fantastic reissues label. Yeah, they yeah. do all kinds of great stuff. The Buzzcocks recently as well. We spoke to Steve Diggle recently, so yeah. Ab- absolutely, totally, totally fantastic label, really. I mean, they've been around, God, I think the first thing I bought by them was a Dead Kennedys album in 1980-81 or something, so, and it's great they're still here. You talk about that. They're one of the original big few, aren't they? The independent labels that have carried on for so long. And absolutely. I, I salute them. It's wonderful that they're still there, and they're a great bunch of people as well anyway um yeah ken hensley album it's called my book of answers um it's a two-year collaboration with a russian fan who's called uh, vladimir emelin if i have his uh, my apologies vladimir if my pronunciation is well off the mark there but anyway um apparently he's a huge he's a huge fan of ken's and it came about more or less by serendipity he says about it i was flying to moscow sorry ken said about it I was flying to Moscow and I was on my way home when he saw me at the airport. Uh, I guess I'm his idol and he's been a fan since he was a kid. He asked me for an autograph and a picture, which I was happy to give him, and an email address. 
And from there, they kind of developed a, a friendship. Um, Emily asked Ken if he could turn a couple of his poems into songs. And Ken said, well, okay, we'll give it a try. He loved it. And it ended up being this album that is now coming out. And it's been put together under, under lockdown. Um, obviously, the sad thing about it is that sadly, Ken isn't going to be here to actually promote the release. Yeah. But obviously, for fans of Uriah Heap and Ken Hensley in general, it's some good news after Ken's passing recently. So um, that's going to be out in March anyway. Thank you very much, Tim. What's next? The next one is um, Def Leppard, is, or related to Def Leppard. Um, their drummer, Rick, Rick Allen, during mm -hmm. the week, was voted as the best rock drummer in the world by the readers of Music Radar. Oh, okay. That's an interesting one. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, you know, Rick Allen, he's, he's had to overcome an awful lot of difficulties over the years, yeah, famously. Yeah. And um, this particular poll is quite interesting uh, because according to the, the statistics in it, uh, Rick has beaten a number of other famous drummers in it. Uh, number two in the poll was Volbeat's John Larson, the um, Danish band who are very popular in, in Germany. Oh, okay. uh, but also there's names like um, Motley Cruz, Tommy Lee came in at number seven. Uh, Roger Taylor, Roger Queen. Taylor from Queen came in at five. Surprisingly, uh, Dave Grohl was as low as number nine. I mean, Dave Grohl, I mean, amazing drummer. Whether you're talking Nirvana or mm -hmm. Foo Fighters or you know them Crooked Vultures or whatever else, yeah, yeah. and Phil Rudd from ACDC came in at number ten. So there's a couple of odd names in there. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you speak, you speak about names from the top ten. The ones that immediately come to me are Neil Peart or uh, Bonzo or you know Cozy <laughs> or these sorts of people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but, yeah. It's quite surprised to hear Motley Cruz Tommy Tommy in there to be yeah honest. well the, the other thing is also is that um uh, five seconds of, of summer's drummer the Australian band the the drummer Ashton Irwin came mm -hmm. in at number three so I don't I must say I don't actually have the statistics as to how many people this poll was conducted etc uh, etc et but um anyway yeah, it's great yeah. to see Rick Allen coming out on top I mean he has uh it's just over 35 years that he had since he had his accent and I think it's you know he's remarkable yeah so that's my second story for the evening, Paul. And I've, sa I've, I've saved a good one for the third one. We all like a drink at Christmas, don't we, after all? So, so how about maybe trying some Motorhead-branded bourbon for Christmas? Oh, okay, okay. I like where this is going. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like a limited edition thing, actually. Of course, as you probably realise, it's the 40th anniversary of the Ace of Spades album, or at least it was about, I think, mm -hmm. three weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, apparently this is a, a new a new venture, and uh, this bourbon is a new venture between Global Brews. They're the agency who previously done... Um, do you remember Iron Maiden's Trooper Beer that's been doing very I well? I was going to say, yeah, yeah, the other famous alcohol was Iron Maiden, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And also, the, it's in conjunction with a distillery in New York's Hudson Valley who are called Hill Rock. So it's the two of these are putting it putting it out. Okay. And uh, just, to, just to further excite you, the manufacturers describe the bourbon as, quote, a lush and velvety expression of Hill Rock's Solera-aged bourbon amplified by this undiluted <laughs> proof, etc. It's just a truly decanter-worthy <laughs> bottling. So um, now... The, 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 Got me sold. Oh, well, very good. Now, the only downside to this, unfortunately, it's a limited 
limited edition thing. So apparently there's only 1,200, well, it's 1,222, so just over 1,200 bottles of it. So um, it basically, if you just um, check out uh, Hillrock's website, if you just go to Hillrock Distillers, um, they'll be give you more information about it. So, but there is actually, if you go onto YouTube, you can actually see, again, if you just put Motorhead Bourbon into YouTube, you'll find that there is like an introductory video and the distillery worker is like wearing the snaggletooth, you know, the Motorhead <laughs> snaggletooth mask or whatever. So it's in keeping with the time of year anyway. So pour yourself a Lemmy for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> pour yourself a Lemmy for Christmas. That's brilliant, Tim. Thank you very much for joining us this week. You're very welcome, Paul. <laughs> Thanks to Tim as always. Right, now it's time for the interview. And I was delighted to be able to speak to Steve Harley, the Cockney Rebel frontman himself. Now, I've interviewed him previously for, for radio stations, things like that. And he was always a great storyteller. So I reached out to him again and he doesn't disappoint. He tells all the stories behind his smash it single, Come Up and See Me, Make Me Smile, how it came about, the recording of it, getting to number one, all that sort of stuff. He also spoke about his new album, which is something different for him and very different in the way it was recorded too. A little warning though, the quality of the audio isn't great. Sadly, the line wasn't the best, but once you get past that and get used to it, it really is a great interview. And Steve has some fantastic stories and great things to say. So please enjoy this interview with Steve Harley. So today I'm delighted to be joined by a man that I've spoke to in the past, about 15 years or so ago now, but he's always a pleasure to speak to. So please welcome to the Vintage Rock Pod, Steve Harley. Greetings. Nice to be with you. Greetings indeed. Thank you very much, Steve. Now, the music that you did craft uh, with the, the original Cockney Rebel lineup, it was, I mean, you were held up with Bowie and Brian Ferry and the likes of that because you were pushing boundaries when it came to music and song structure and you had a really distinctive voice as well, didn't you? Yeah, well, yeah I suppose I can't help the voice. Um, that's mellowed and matured. <laughs> but um, I um, realised how perhaps, dare I say, original big word to use about yourself but we we didn't see the barriers to be honest we were i was 22 a couple of them were roughly my age or a bit younger but we didn't see any barriers i didn't i wasn't aware of them i did what i wanted to do and i was pretty mad i was crazy it took neil harrison the young in-house producer from emi who produced the human menagerie sebastian is three chords suddenly there's a 40-piece symphony orchestra walking into the studio and a 20-piece choral, a, a choir. I, I, come on, I, of course it was incredibly impressive. Made a huge impression on this young man. We did break barriers in that, uh, for an, a, an, an original well, first album. You're talking songs that were, what, two minutes long and songs that were nearly 10 minutes long, all within that sort of sphere. It was, it, it was incredible. I've wished, though, you know, all my career, I have wished that I could make an album that where every track sounded like the same. I've, I've always been eclectic in my productions. I, I finally have with the un, Uncovered new album. I've done that because I went into a, a residential studio with four or five guys, no overdubbing, no one was brought in. It was just us, the team. Well, two gospel singers were added later on some tracks. So that's got a, a flow from A to Z all the way through that al the new album. There's a thread. But uh, it's the first time I've ever managed to do it. Brilliant. Um, in terms of the big hit, then, we'll touch on that. Come on, come up and see me make me smile. Now, th there's a big story behind that, isn't it? The original Cockney Rebel lineup that you had with you, they decided they'd, they'd had enough and they left. That's where the song kind of came from. Now, tell us the story behind that. Yeah, it's a bizarre thing. You know, Sebastian had been a big hit in 
Europe, not in the UK, they wouldn't play it, but it was huge around Europe. Then I wrote and produced Judy Team, and became a big hit single. Then the Sakamoto album, and um, Mr. Soft was a big hit from that. Yep. And it was an album they could be proud of, you know. It's, a, it's an interesting second album, for sure. And it was a hit, top 10 album. And we did this huge tour, 44 dates, all sold out. You know, we were flavor of the month. And uh, they walked out on me, three of them. Just weird. They just came to us at the end of the tour into a hotel room and said, we, we, we need to talk. Oh, crikey, that's ominous. What about? We, 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 we liked each other. It, it, they were great fun. They were all very funny people. Stuart still is. Stuart Elliott, you know, he, he's still with me. He's my friend and still plays drums with me. Hilariously funny. And we had a, a scream in the studio and on the road, always giggling and laughing. Then they just decided that they wanted, they thought I was earning a lot more than them from publishing because I'd written all the songs. Well, yeah, guys, but they're hits. Um, you're doing well. And I've written the third album already. The best years of our lives was not all written because it made me smile came as a one-off later. I don't know. It's a bizarre stuff. I've never understood it, never. And they don't say much. I mean, they, they don't in public, um, to their credit. Uh, Paul Jeffries was a really, really sweet guy, the bass player, who stayed friends with me in spite of all that. Uh, he was very close to Peter Green. Peter Green and Paul and I... We'd have lunch in the East End, where they were both from. They were East End London Jewish boys. And I had a lot in common with them. He was terrific. The, uh, the other two, I, I mean, they don't say much in public, I'm pleased to say, because I'm pretty litigious. Uh, you, you know, they have to be very careful what they did say, because I know the truth. And I won't have it uh, any other way. So how did you feel at this time then? Um, when, like you said, you're, you're riding the crest of the wave. You've got huge albums, huge singles. You're touring. You're really successful. You're in the public eye. And then they come to you and basically say that they're away. That's it. They're gone. How did, how did you feel? Did you think, oh, no, that's the end of it? Or did you, did, were you always really self-confident that you, you'd still march on and still power on and still be this big star? Yeah, come on. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's the correct I, answer. <laughs> yeah, really. I, I've learned a, a lot, a lot of humility as I've aged, Paul, a lot. I'm, I'm a lucky man and grateful for everything I've got, which is a lot. But this was my life. They weren't going to ruin that. You can wreck one band, but my head was swimming, swimming with ideas. We had... Only about six weeks after the, the end of that tour, we were second to headline on the bill at um, Reading Festival. 50,000 people. We were second headline. Finn Lizzy were going to headline. And I was going to play that. You know, <laughs> people said, you've got no band. Well, we're on the bill and I'm playing. And uh, I quickly auditioned a few people. The wonderful George Ford came into my life. Fantastically beautiful, lovely man. And a great bass player. Cregan. Still my best pal, Jim, you know, came in. And we played that. We played that gig. We played an hour set. We rehearsed in two days somewhere in London with an electric guitar, which I'd never had before. So we rearranged the songs to suit Jim. And I was off on another direction, you know. And as you rightly say, that November, we went into Abbey Road to record the Best Years of Our Lives album. And I had written most of it in advance. And then Make Me Smile came out there. And uh, 
they call it my pension. <laughs> <They're not far laughs> but tell, tell us about the, the, the crafting of Make Me Smile then, because to anyone who's a casual listener who's heard the song loads of times over the years on the radio, it sounds like a nice, upbeat, poppy, smiley song, doesn't it? But clearly underneath there, there was, there was a little bit, I don't know, anger. Was there a bit of release for you when you were writing this? Yeah, I, I wrote it as a slow blues. And I went in every day in that November 74, I would go into Abbey Road, Beatles Studio Number Two, with the staircase over the motor. We were in there for about a month. I would sit the guys down every morning. We would turn up at about eleven in the morning, and we'd work till midnight most days. And I'd sit them in down in the studio there on the floor around the grand piano. And I sat them down one morning and went in and just said, "It goes like this." And it, it, it was me on the guitar playing like, "You've done it, oh, come." Broken every like that, and uh, it's quite bluesy. I pictured slide, slide guitar, and Alan Parsons, my co-producer, came down the stairs and he said, um, "That's interesting. Could, would you like to try it a bit quicker?" And Stuart got on the kit and started to play that mid-tempo backbeat that you're all so used to. And I said to Alan, "Yeah, but you know, it's quite a dark song." And he said, "Well." There's a hit in here, isn't there? I said, yeah, I do feel something special about it when I'm singing it now. Then I thought of putting on the, the Beatles because we were in their room and it was like, let's give a nod to the fabs. Ooh, la, 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 ooh, la, la, la. That was the Beatles nod. Um, all those hooks. Then we put the choir on. It's about eight, eight session singers with my band singing. And then um, when I was doing the demo to the guys, I, I hadn't written the middle eight which is an actual middle 12 bars, which is completely different shapes to anything else in the song. And we put that in and I said to Alan, I want to get Phil Kenzie in, or Steve Gregory, two fantastic sax players, to put an alto or a tenor sax over that. And Cregan was in the room. He's the only one there. It was quite late in the evening. And he said, can I have a go on that with acoustic guitar? Well, okay, have a go, yeah. And that great, great, memorable, very iconic acoustic guitar solo came to life. Jim doesn't like this, but he agrees that it's a composite of two takes. It is a composite of three separate takes. He doesn't like to hear it, but it, it really is. Alan Parsons and I mixed that. And, and, and before you had the digital stuff, before you could cut the paste with a mouse, it was faders and yeah. cut buttons, you know? Come on, quick. That one, now that one. And it's like three bars from one take, four bars from that take, and then back to back to take one. Whoa. So Jim had to learn his own solo because he didn't play it. <laughs> you know, he didn't play it. So in rehearsals for touring, he had to learn the guitar solo. Strange but true. It's absolutely true. It's hard to play. I've had a lot of guitarists through my band over the years had to learn to play it but they have to play it spot on the buck note for note because an audience is going to sing that it's like yeah. a melody yeah and you said there that you, you kind of you felt it was a well you felt you had a hit in you and um i remember when i spoke to you last time you said that there was a story of when i think when you'd finished the mix or when it was just about finished it was late one night and the managing director of emi came in and, and had a listen and he was like true. that's a hit he said it straight away before it was even properly finished yeah quite true it had finished but it was a rough mix with no fade. Um, we put all those gaps in. He came, yeah, he came in, the managing director of EMI. He was staying in an apartment block next door to Abbey Road. There's a Victorian apartment block. And 
we played it and he, he said, number one. And in those days, you know, when they said they could make you a, a big hit, they really could. They could move mountains. They had the sales force. They knew how to work the shops. and the, it, it, it was all kinds of sales techniques going on. You had to have the product. You couldn't make a piece of rubbish. But when they had a product, like, what would they be thinking when they heard Bohemian Rhapsody a year later? You know, uh, could could it be a hit? You know, Sebastian wasn't at six minutes. They wouldn't play it. It was long and mysterious. You know, nine months later, Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, maybe I softened up the Radio 1 producers for them. I don't know. Those were special days, and that, that's the Make Me Smile story. It came out of adversity. I was kicked in the nuts by those three guys with a massive festival date, to a tour of Europe to come up in the following year. And basically, I haven't stopped since. So was I concerned? Well, I'm, I was even back then at that age a great fatalist. I'm quite religious, but I'm also a fatalist, oddly enough. And um, one door shuts. Hey, sorry, platitudes, cliches. It's the only way to live. I brought my two kids up thinking that way. You've got to have positivity and confidence in yourself. Humility comes first. Humility. But once you've learned that, believe in yourself. My dad, you know, I, I lived on crutches until I was 16. And I went to ordinary, normal schools. I got tripped up in the playground playing football on crutches. And the school watched it happen. And it was fine because my dad said to me in front of them, he'd say, Get up and get on. And that's the spirit of my life. And you got up and you got on with it and you had your biggest hit. And I mean, how did it feel then when, well, obviously everyone's telling you it's going to be number one, but that's one thing. Actually having the number one, how did that feel? Well, we were in Los Angeles. Um, we just finished um, an American tour. We played two nights at the Whiskey in LA and we were staying at the Chateau Marmont in Beverly Hills on Hollywood Boulevard. And... Uh, my room's phone rang at three in the morning, which was 10 in the morning in the UK. And uh, it, was it was the managing director himself, Bob Mercer. And I wasn't asleep. He knew I wouldn't be. <laughs> he knew we, lived, we, were, we were quite nocturnal, I've got to tell you. He knew that. The rock stars in the 70s, you all were. You're all nocturnal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. And uh, so I answered it and he said, I told you, didn't I? What's that? Number one. Just like that, it, three weeks, it went 26, 9, 1. <clears throat> we were flying back the next day. It's all, all serendipity. We were f flying back the, the next day to the UK, and uh, we arrived at Heathrow. We're taken straight by EMI and limousines to Wood Lane in West London, where the Top of the Pops studios were, television studios we went to a five-star hotel in, in Kensington to, to chill out, to unwind, to try and get over a bit of jet <laughs> Then went to the TV studio and made our presentation at number, was number one. Yeah, it, it was a, I, I, we were young again. You know, I was 24 then. And um, kind of take it in your stride. It was wonderful. We did celebrate. And we didn't think it was our right by any means. But... You kind of, you're young and you can rule the world. And we, we thought we could. 
Phenomenal story. Absolutely phenomenal story. Um, let's move it to, to now then. Obviously, 2020 has been a very difficult year for, for everybody, let's be honest. Um, you released um, your latest album. It's been a few years since you released an album, uh, but you released it at the start of the year, February time, called Uncovered. Now, it's a, it's a very interesting collection of songs, isn't it? And there's there's a, a nice reason behind the collection of the songs, because there's only a couple of them that are actually your comp- uh, compositions yourself, aren't you? Yeah, two of them are mine, and nine of them are not mine. So why did you decide to do something like that then? They're songs that I've been singing at home. I've got three, I've got lots of guitars. I've got one in each of three different rooms set up in my house. Um, and I play all the time, all the time. Uh, played a whole, I wrote a song last night in a whole new tuning. My own tuning, bizarre tuning, <laughs> and I wrote a whole song on it. And my wife came in and said, "That's," uh, and I said, "I'm still actively writing." Um, but these are songs that have always really touched me. Some of them are very well known. We do this Jagger Richards song, "Out of Time." We've got McCartney's song, "I've Just Seen a Face." Some of them are not at all well known. The Long Pigs, "Lost Myself," fabulous song. And I've done it my way. I won't have it called covers. They're interpretations. They're my interpretations of great songs that I wish I'd written. Um, the Cat Stevens, Yusuf's How Can I Tell You. It's just the simplest, finest love song in history to me. And I've told him that whenever I'm with him, I say that to him. <laughs> and to, to perform it with these virtuoso players, I've got to tell you, to have Martin Simpson on guitar in the studio with you for a couple of weeks is, is quite something. He's, he's from a very special place, Martin. But the other guys on the record are virtuoso players. And also, the people I knew had imagination. They're not just reading dots. They could contribute. People who, you know, they come in, they're, session, they're playing as session musicians for me for a, for a fee. You know, we agree terms. But one of the terms is you contribute. I'm not coming in with chord sheets and scripts. I'm coming in with a guitar and I'll sing it to you. This is how it goes. And then they loved it. They just loved it. Immense freedom. I give musicians a lot of freedom. We improvise. I want their ideas. I'm wide open, you know, and I'm good at saying no. I'm not bothered. You know, they have to learn that it's no offense, guys. No, no, no. I don't want that one. Let's move on. I don't want a big debate about it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hurt your feelings. Yeah. It's like, I won't hurt your feelings. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's an album I'm very proud of. I'm really proud and of. And talk about the, the recording of the album then, because you, you told me beforehand, it, it's very different, isn't it? It's not been engineered in any way post. It's, it's all been as recorded as, as you'll hear it. Yeah, it's, um, it's quite special. Anyone that's bought it, and it's, it's done well, considering we're not promoting it. You know, I had 65 shows this year to promote it. Played, we played nine before the door slammed in our faces. Um, so we're not promoting it, but next year, God willing, when we go back on the road, I've got 60 odd shows already on sale from May next year to December. People who have heard it, they may be, they may be hearing for the first time in their lives an album with no EQ. It's when an engineer fades, turns knobs to improve and embellish sound. I wouldn't let him do that, my engineer. Incredibly clever young man, and I said what I wanted, no EQ, and he said, "So you don't want me to engineer?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's all strings: violin, viola, acoustic guitars, double bass, a little bit of live jazz drumming. No EQ. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear sounds on this record. 
that the average engineer and producer and artist would spend day upon day <laughs> deleting, erasing, getting rid of, eradicating. Yeah. And I'm going, oh, this is human. I'm just so knocked out by it. I, I'm, I, I'm listening to someone else's record, frankly. I'm that moved by it. It's not, it's not ego and vanity. I don't have that those emotions anymore. It's not. I don't need that. I don't have it. But it's in all honesty. I'm hearing something. I'm thinking, wow. You know, for digestity, I've done this. You know, just that's proud. That's yeah. I can't help it. <laughs> Lovely. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Steve. Um, yeah. So your new album, we're calling it your new album, uh, Uncovered. Yeah. It's available to buy now or stream now or download yes. now, whatever it is. Um, please do so. It's, it's a fantastic record. It's it's a, a, an incredible record all round when you talk about the, the recording of it, the, the artists involved, the songs involved, and yourself, obviously, as well. So please check that out. And um, thank you very much for joining us on the Vintage Rock Pod, Steve. It's been a real pleasure, Paul, a real pleasure. Greetings to all of your, your listeners and viewers around the world. Loved that so much. What a great guy, Steve Harley. He actually sent me a hand-signed copy of his new album, Uncovered, on CD, which is uh, fabulous. Check it out for a real authentic recording sound and his interpretations of some great songs as well. And, as is customary on Vintage Rock Pods, Steve becomes the subject of this week's Top 5. So here we go, my favourite Top 5 Steve Harley songs according to Vintage Rock Pod. At 5 is a track that's actually a cover and a cover of a Beatles song no less, but the fact that Steve managed to almost make the song his own with his version of it is testament to him. It was the lead single from his fifth album, Love's a Prima Donna, was a big hit too, reaching number 10 in the UK singles chart in 1976. At number 5 is Here Comes the Sun. At number 4 is his debut single from the first album, Human Menagerie. It's seven minutes long, it grows, it builds, it evolves throughout, features a huge orchestra and a choir, and became a hit across Europe, notably climbing to number one in Belgium and number two in Holland. And number four is Sebastian. Third on our list is the title track of his second album, an upbeat rolling rock song with some wonderful lyrics thrown into match. And number three is Psychomodo. At two was a big single for the band from the Psychomodo album as well. It went top ten in 1974, famously used on TV adverts too. At number two, for me, is Mr. Soft. And at number one, it's the big one. It couldn't be anything else really, could it? A masterpiece of songwriting brilliantly put together and topped the charts in 1975, has sold over 1.5 million copies as a single worldwide and been covered by more than 120 different acts. The number one Steve Harley song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is Make Me Smile. As always, let me know your thoughts on that selection. Do you agree or disagree? Let me know on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on the platforms and let me know. Right, moving on, it's time to catch up with our good friend from Los Angeles. We've missed him the last few weeks, so it's great to get him on again. It's Maudie from History of Rock Facebook page, powered by Ranker.com. Now let's see what rock facts he's got lined up for us this week. I'm great. I'm great. Had a couple of uh, good days off. It was holiday around here, so uh, I made sure to stay off uh, all my work emails <laughs> and you know, really unhooked because this year has been quite a lot. So Absolutely. We do not blame you at all. <laughs> hey, man. Yeah. You just got to take a load off, especially it's this time of year. So, um, but, but I'm back and ready for you. I, I do. We have prepared a list for you. Um, the weirdest musical feuds of rock history or well of music history, really this list, but I'm going to touch on the most mm-hmm. epic rock feuds. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But let's let's take a look at everything we've got here. Yeah. Uh, I think the first one that's worth talking about is uh, one of the most epic goth battles of all time is Morrissey and Robert Smith, obviously. You know, Morrissey, <laughs> famous for taking controversial stances, you know, calling people out. So um, apparently it all started when Morrissey was being interviewed and somebody asked a weird question about if he was in a room with Marky Smith of The Falls or the Cure frontman, Robert Smith, and a loaded gun, what would he do? And Morrissey said he would off both of them because <laughs> he just couldn't, you know, stand them both. But I guess that was the beginning of the big feud between them. That's a bit crazy. To be fair, he's only answering a question there. That whoever was interviewing him set them up there, didn't they? So he's only answering a question. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, to, to add some context, I feel like there's always been a little bit of a, you know, uh, like who who is the better band, like, or who's the better singer, who's the better frontman for like that kind of you know, more broody rock. So that's just to egg it on, kind of a thing, just to be like, oh, who would you, you know? So it, apparently it all started there, and there is a wealth of events and you know back and forths between them. You know, Smith said, you know, he just never liked them. Uh, apparently he stayed more on like the high higher ground he was like i'm just not really gonna say much whatever but morrissey like morrissey is he's like he's a fat clown with makeup weeping over a guitar you know <laughs> but we have a whole <laughs> breakdown of like i said it started all in like you know this one interview and like it's all just a roller coaster honestly but it's the most amazing yeah, yeah. thing ever and that, that's actually number eight on our list. So it's not even the most interesting one. Wow. Um, okay. let, let's move on a few spots here to, we'll move on to number three, which is a very surprising one for me. I guess I wasn't around at the time, so I don't know much context. I, I, didn't, I don't know what the uh, ecosystem looked like in rock and roll, but Keith Richards apparently had it out for Elton John. Oh, okay. Why? I couldn't stay. They both had it out for each other. Every time anyone spoke about the other one, it was just, oh. You know, like, I'm not going to miss him when he retires or uh, like Keith Richards shouldn't be in the band. He's just a monkey, like with a guitar playing, trying to stay alive. Like they would have uh, been way better off if they had ditched him 15 years ago, you know, and this is in the, like 70s. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think they've hated each other for a long time. And I honestly had no idea how much. Honestly, I'm glad they're both still around <laughs> and that they made the music that they did. Quite surprised they're still around as well. Oh, I mean, that, that's a whole nother subject. Keith Richards is just <laughs> like impermeable to death, you know? But yeah, I thought that was a great one. Also that we have a bunch of just random little facts and, and it goes into the interviews that they talked about each other. But I, I thought that was just a weird one to look at. Like Elton John yeah. and Keith Richards, like what? And then I'm, I'm going to move on now to, it's actually the number two feud on our list. It's, so there's one that's even more juicy, I guess, okay. um, according to the fans. But this is definitely like the most hardcore one. Just And, and we go in depth in an article. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's Nirvana versus Guns N' Roses. You know, greats of completely different eras. One was almost like hair metal, just gods, and then, you know, emerging grunge. It's, it's well documented, actually, that Axel reached out to Nirvana and invited Kurt and the band to play on tour in 1992 with them when they were just, you know, blowing up. <laughs> Cobain responds and he just tells Axel Rose that he's a sellout and he wants nothing to do with this tour. <laughs> uh, and 
who does that to Axl Rose? Axl Rose is like the most ill-tempered person in all of rock and roll. So obviously he goes off on a tirade, just like goes off on Kurt and calls him and his wife junkies. And, you know, at this moment, Courtney Love was pregnant. And But just like, I don't know, the, the, the comedy between them is just so good. Apparently at the MTV Music Awards in 92, um, they saw each other on the red carpet, you know, Courtney Love and Kurt was there and then they saw Axl Rose and, and Courtney Love knew about all this stuff and how he'd been calling her a junkie and stuff. And he just goes, Hey, um, I would like to ask you to be my daughter's or my, my kid's, um, godfather, if you don't mind, like sarcastically, obviously Axl Rose lost his mind apparently right there. And he just, Asked Kurt to quiet his wife, let's just say, in not so nice terms. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they ever really buried the hatchet. I don't know. They're both just, I mean, Axel's just a hothead and he's nuts. <laughs> As we've touched on before, yeah, with your list of 30 things that Axel Rose goes crazy about, I think we did a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? <laughs> we did. We sure did. You can check that out for sure. Um, that's all I have for you today, Paul. Hey, and that's just three of the list, isn't it? There's other ones on there too. And what's the best way to find the rest of them, Maudie? You can come find me at History of Rock on Facebook. Uh, you give us a like, give us a follow, and I'll be sure to shoot you some good articles and, and nice little uh, tidbits you probably didn't know about history in your favorite bands. Absolutely perfect. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us again this week, mate. An absolute pleasure, Paul. Thanks for having me. And that's it for episode 11. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I've got one more episode lined up for release before Christmas, dropping on Monday, 21st December. Then I'm going to take a few weeks well-earned break and be back in uh, 2021, probably mid to late January, with more top interviews from the classic rock world. Next week's interview, by the way, though, is with a drummer who travelled and played a lot in Europe before hitting the big time in the late 70s with a huge band also drummed on one of the classic Bob Dylan albums too, so you won't want to miss those stories. As always, please continue to spread the word. Tell your friends and your family to get listening to the podcast. There's some great stories for everyone to enjoy on these episodes. Also, catch up with us on social media as well. We're on most platforms. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube as well. And if you fancy coming on and chatting about your love of rock music on a future episode, then just drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Maybe we can fix it up and get you on one of the shows going forward. Until episode 12 then, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 